I, uh, I didn't get the chance to, uh, to discourage a flattering introduction, which I usually do. Um, and now more than ever is it needed because I can barely stand, let alone, <laughs> let alone think. I just spent the last little while in Guinea and I just got off a plane. Um, and I'm going to have to stop promptly uh, at 2.15 because I've, I've got to get to a meeting in London. And if I miss the 2.30 train, I'm in the soup. So, uh, um, so I apologize that, uh, that I, will, I will sort of rush out. But um, I wanted to start with discussing the costs of corruption and then what can be done about it. And uh, I'll probably not get further than discussing how we can help um, Fundamentally, these struggles against corruption are internal struggles, and we as outsiders are, play merely a supporting role. Um, it's very important that we don't get the impression that this is our battle. It's other people's battle, and we're supporting. Right? We are absolutely not trying to impose our values on others. Um, in every country in the world, uh, looting of the public purse is a criminal offence. I'm aware there are lawyers in the audience who may find the odd exception, but broadly <laughs> that's true. Um, the problem in these societies uh, is, that they is, is not that their values are wrong, it's that they have difficulty enforcing their own laws. And we should help them in trying to enforce their own laws. Um, so we're not imposing a set of values, we're assisting in a law enforcement task. Now, let me start with, um, with the cost of corruption. And um, uh, I, I was called in that Britain, of course, hasn't had a terribly distinguished record in prosecuting corruption. It's brought, to my knowledge, one case in the, the last decade. Um, and that was the... Uh, what was their name? Mabley, the, uh, the, the bridge builders? It's, yeah. it's more now, it's increasing now. Okay, well, the, um, I know about this case because I was brought in by the serious fraud office to be the expert witness for the prosecution, and what I was asked to do was testify on the costs of corruption. Um, and I was reminded of this with my conversation at lunch because um, what the... Serious fraud office expected me to say, which is actually what my lawyer friend who I was talking with at lunch um, highlighted, was that the obvious cost of corruption is the, the bribes that, uh, that are being paid, that that raises the cost. In this case, uh, it was bridges that were being sold, and they were 15% more expensive than they should have been to the government because 15% was bribed. So the serious fraud office expected me to say the cost of corruption was 15% of, of the expenditure on these bridges. And that's not what I said at all. Um, that would be a wild underestimate of the costs of corruption. Um, and it's best illustrated, it's, it's, it's very nicely illustrated by this, this, this case, uh, the Mabley case, which was... Um, one of the main places they built bridges was in Jamaica. And um, so they paid their 15% to um, an official in the Ministry of Public Works. Um, he was the guy who 
uh, awarded the bridge, did the, did, the, did the detailed procurement of the bridge contracts. Um, now, what did this guy do with his 15%? Um, he didn't spend it on high living. Uh, would that he had. <laughs> then the cost would indeed have just ended at 15%. What he spent it on was he decided he got political ambitions and he, he, his talents were wasted as a middle-rank uh, bureaucrat in the Ministry of Public Works. He wanted to give his talents to the wider nation uh, and for this money was awfully helpful in building a political career. So sure enough, he managed to become a member of parliament and sure enough, he managed to rise up the the greasy pole of politics, by the time this case came to court, he was his country's Minister of Transport. And so my testimony was, what is the cost of having a crook as your Minister of Transport? It's very much more than 15% on a few bridges. And that, in miniature, is the, and it really illustrates the costs of corruption, uh, of grand corruption. And the, the, the killer point is that these costs are much higher in democracies than in autocracies. So that the wave of democratization we've seen over the last 15 years, which is a very messy democratization, actually increases the value of political money because it's a sort of democratic politics in which money really is the route to power. Money buys the patronage networks uh, which make, enable you to win in the messy democratic politics that many of these countries have got. So that has what economists call selection effects in the political class. The sort of politicians who come forward are the ones who are attracted, who are willing to use corrupt money to build political power. Conversely, the sort of would-be politicians who are discouraged are those people who have too much integrity to try and achieve political power through that route. And so over time you have these very adverse selection effects in which the political class, the people actively contesting power, are the people who are not only using bribes for power, but are the ones that are willing to do that. And so in the end, the electorate is faced by a political contest, a choice, a non-choice. Crook A or crook B. If that's the menu, democracy's lost its potency. So there's the true cost of, uh, of corruption. Now let's turn to what we can do about it. And um, it seems to me we've got, um, we've got two broad instruments. First of all, we shouldn't overestimate how much power and influence we've got. In some countries, we've got virtually no power and influence. Um, in, in, in one set of situations, we've got power through our aid programs. And what, one set of circumstances, we've got power through our corporate relations. And uh, we should use both of those. <coughs> Let me start with, with, with aid. Um, 
I was one of the people who have been most critical over the years of uh, policy conditionality of aid. Um, I, I argued 10, 15 years ago that policy conditionality, the attempt by donors to say you can have our money if you adopt these policies, that the big problem with that is that not only is it an affront um, uh, to to sovereignty, but um, it it, uh, weakens the the connection between government and citizen. Governments have to take responsibility for the policies they adopt. And they can't do that if they're being told by donors what policies to adopt. So I have a long and, I think, creditable history of opposing policy conditionality in aid. But I want to draw a distinction between policy conditionality and governance conditionality. By governance (coughs) conditionality, I mean not a set of policies. I mean the the integrity, the financial integrity of the... Of the of, of the of the of the of the aid relationship, and as I started by saying, this is not a matter of us, infor- us imposing our value system on others; it's a matter of us in assisting the brave people in these societies who are trying to enforce their own laws. And so, I believe our aid should always insist on clean budgetary processes. (coughs) This is particularly the case where we do what's called budget support. Budget support is the blank check. The the old style of aid was project aid where money was at least notionally tied to particular expenditures. (coughs) The actual (coughs) reality was that um, there was often virtually no connection between what the money was said to be for and how it was actually used, but there was at least some notional link. But with budget support, there isn't even a notional link. <coughs> it's just a blank check to the government. The government is free to use the money for what it, what it likes. In many contexts, that is appropriate, but you really need to, to satisfy two hurdles before it's appropriate. Um, one is, is, if you like, a sort of political hurdle, which is to say is this a government which is broadly aligned with the interests of its own citizens? And that's, that's just a political judgment. If the, if, the, if, the, if the government is not aligned with the interests of its citizens, manifestly not, um, then, then you wouldn't want to do budget support. But even where a government is aligned with the interests of its citizens, it's a, you know, either a democratic government or a benign autocracy, um, there's a second question, which is, is the government actually able to implement effectively the expenditures it, 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 it wants? Or is it sitting atop a very leaky process um, in which the, the money goes in at the top but doesn't come out at the bottom? Yeah? Um, the World Bank pioneered, a, one of my former students, Reid Veronica, pioneered a, a thing called ex- public expenditure tracking surveys where she just followed the money released by ministries of finance for different spending purposes um, and came to these horrific conclusions that that, that much of the money was often leaking out. Um, The most uh, spectacular I came across was 
was, I think, Chad, where money released by the Ministry of Finance for rural health clinics, only one cent in the dollar actually reached the clinics. Um, now, um, by the time you've got that sort of leakage, uh, budget support becomes crazy because you're not actually financing anything worthwhile. And the worst thing about it, remember, is not that the money leaks. It's not that it's wasted. Think back to my first point, the costs of corruption. It's that the money's captured. It's captured in empowering the very people who are the heart of the problem. And so um, closing your eyes to the process by which money is spent um, is, is the height of irresponsibility. So one of the things I advocate um, is that there should be an independent certification process for budget systems to certify whether or not they are sufficiently sound to warrant budget support. Um, a number of my friends in Africa um, tell me, really, please, please push this. As, as one um, head civil servant in a treasury said to me, um, we know that our system would not meet certification standards. We know why, we know what to do about it, and we know that if we tell the president, sorry, we've not met certification standards and so budget support is going to stop, what he would say is do whatever it takes to fix it. And so an independent certification system for budget support seems to me one thing we can do to assist the brave people who are struggling to get these budget systems sound. So that's the aid story. And now let me turn to the corporate story. Um, And uh, I want to highlight um, two two industries. Um, I believe you've had a discussion on armaments, so I'm not going to do armaments. Um, I want to talk about natural resources and the, and the construction sector. And let's start with natural resources. Um, it's, uh, the, the, it's quite clear that um, uh, with natural resource extraction, um, there's what economists call an agency problem, a massive agency problem. And I've just, since I've just got off a plane from Guinea, I... Might as well talk a little bit about it. Um, Here's a a new democratic government that's just come to power in the last month. It's the first democratic government in Guinea. And what it finds is that it has inherited a load of natural resource extraction contracts. Uh, It doesn't know much about them. But uh, the little it does know suggests that not all of these contracts have been negotiated in the best interests of the citizens of Guinea shall we put it like that, right? Um, we don't want to say anything that might get us into trouble since this is being broadcast and all these contracts are going to have to be negotiated, <laughs> do we? Um, but to give you one example, um, uh, Rio Tinto had, a, had, had managed to um, acquire very, very substantial resource extraction rights and then... A, uh, in, the, in the various changes of government in Guinea, uh, one of the governments 
took half of its rights off it. Um, it's not clear whether that was uh, in any way uh, a justified move, but with the half of the rights that the government had taken off Rio, it then gave those rights, as far as we can see, gave them to another company, um, as far as we can see, for no payment. Um, the, uh, the new company, we must hope, was grateful um, because 10 months later, it sold half of its holding for, I believe, $2.3 billion to the Brazilian company Valley, um, which is now insisting that it has full, clean rights to these things that it purchased because it paid money. It didn't pay money to the government of Guinea. It paid money, remember, to the company which had been given the rights by this generous gesture of um, a somewhat transient uh, Guinean military government, um, the leading figures of which are now outside the country. Um, so that's the sort of situation which is actually disturbingly typical, uh, in which the, the agency problem is that, and it's worth conceptualizing as an agency problem, here's a company negotiating with a government over a set of rights for resource extraction. And the government is the agent of the citizens and the, direct, the officials of the company are the agent for the interests of the shareholders. And the agency problem of the company to get its, share, to get its directors to behave in the interests of shareholders is very, very much less acute than the agency problem of the society in getting public officials to act in the interest of society. Um, and so time and again, we've seen uh, these deals which are very advantageous to companies, potentially very advantageous to some public officials, um, but very disadvantageous to, to citizens. And then those deals are defended once a democratic government comes to power, as in Guinea, defended using the mantra of uh, security of, of contract. And, uh, and I think that is... Uh, uh, I'm not a lawyer. Um, but I think it's, a, it's an abuse of the concept. And it's also a misunderstanding of what actually is the foundation of a secure contract. A secure contract is based upon a mutually beneficial arrangement and not just mutually beneficial, but transparently mutually beneficial. In a democracy, a government has a responsibility to present to citizens deals that are transparently mutually beneficial. Once citizens realize that, then the deal will indeed be stable. But that, to my mind that the foundation of secure deals in resource extraction is transparent mutual benefits rather than insisting on, um, on honouring uh, what is often uh, rather odious uh, contracts. Um, the, in the case of natural resources, um, of course, the, the transparent part of that 
has, was, the, was the start of pub, international public action with the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative. Um, that was the right place to start. It's the wrong place to stop because harnessing natural resources for prosperity actually depends upon a long chain of decisions of which transparency of revenues is only one little slice. Um, I mean, to summarise the steps in the chain, you've got to manage the discovery process. And here's a little snippet of information that if we take the average square mile of the OECD and compare it with the average square mile of Africa and look underneath those square miles, in Africa is at the moment only one-fifth as many natural resources discovered as in the OECD. That's because the discovery process in Africa has so far failed. With high commodity prices, all that stuff's going to be discovered. This is the last frontier for resource discovery on Earth. That's why this topic is so important. There's going to be a tidal wave of discoveries over the next decade in Africa. Multiplied by five, the sort of revenues we're seeing coming out of Africa to get some sense of what's likely to be happening in a decade's time. This is the big money. Right? So discovery, taxation. Right? Guinea at the moment is getting practically nothing in revenue from all this resource extraction. Next step, um, and, and, and that, that's a fixable problem, uh, but again, corruption features a lot because the, um, the design of the tax system can be more or less conducive to corruption. The, the, the design that is usually favoured is what's called profits taxes, and the problem with profits taxes is that profits are not very observable. In a perfect world, they're observable, but if you've got big asymmetric information between the parties, profits are just not observable. And so you go for years and years with these poor resource extraction companies never making any profits. Um, so, discovery, taxation, avoiding situations like the Niger Delta by dealing um, with generosity and transparency with the local population in the areas of, uh, in which the resources are extracted. And then all the downstream issues of how you spend the money. Um, I've been part of a process of building the complement to the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, which is called the Natural Resource Charter, which you can see on a website, naturalresourcecharter.org. We're just presenting it to the African Union next week, um, and that is, all the, that is the full decision chain. Um, as Peter Eigen says, the, the, the EITI was the right place to start but it's one slice of a decision chain of which the Natural Resource Charter lays the whole decision chain out. So that's natural resources. Um, we've got similar issues in the construction sector, um, uh, and they're going, again, they're going to be enormously important. The reason that the construction sector is going to become enormously important is that Commodity booms lead to construction booms. And we're going to see in Africa and the other impoverished parts of the world, like Afghanistan, huge resource extraction booms 
which will then generate huge expenditures on construction. And construction is a highly corrupt sector because each construction project is idiosyncratic. And as soon as you move from standardization of product, it's, it's much harder to, 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 to enforce integrity. Um, there's a, an, analog, an analogous initiative to EITI for construction called COST, um, which is in its infancy, and which I hope succeeds in, in building a, a process analogous to EITI. Um, just to give you one example of how you could um, uh, reduce corruption in construction, um, this is an idea coming out of the African Development Bank. Uh, you, could, you could insist upon a standardized software if a development bank finance is used in a project, a standardized software for um, all the financial flows in a construction project. Once you had standardized software, you can program into that software uh, tests for anomalies. And it then becomes harder to conceal uh, bogus costs because the program can, can, can flag them up. Um, so there, there are things that can be done. Um, the construction industry I've been encouraging to try and build benchmark norms for costs of different types of project, which would again be the same sort of thing of flagging up the anomalies. Um, finally, um, where does that leave us? Well, most of the, many of the resource extraction companies and construction companies are OECD companies. Many, but by no means all. Within those companies, there's a huge opportunity, I believe, for enforcing proper standards of behavior. Um, and I heard that I just came in, in the very end this morning enough to hear a discussion about whistleblowers. And it seems to me it's not enough to get the legislation on the books to make uh, uh, unethical behavior criminal. That's a very good start. Um, that's now happening. Certainly with natural resource extraction, that's since July, that's happened in America, thanks to the legislation in America. Um, I was in Brussels in December, and it looks as if they, they actually the, the Development Commission are committed to uh, getting equivalent enforcement mechanism uh, across Europe through during 2000, by the end of 2011, um, using European stock exchanges as enforcement mechanisms, just like the New York Stock Exchange is an enforcement mechanism. Hong Kong already has the, these enforcement mechanisms in the, the Hong Kong stock market. So the legislation will, I think, be there. The problem will then be uh, whether we go from uh, legislation to prosecution, and for that we need whistleblowers. As I started by saying, I was the prosecution witness in what I believe was the only case in 10 years that the Serious Fraud Office brought. And the reason it brought that case was itself comic. Um, the, the company uh, maybe changed its management and the new management was so horrified by what it saw on the books, such transparently shameful behavior, 
that it came to the serious fraud office and said, please prosecute us. Yeah? <laughs> if you prosecute us, we'll plead guilty and then, we, then, we'll, then we'll be safe. Right? And that was the only reason that that prosecution was brought. Now, the lesson to me is that we need whistleblowers. Uh, and so we need incentives for whistleblowers and in particular we need immunity for whistleblowers. So I was saddened to hear that the big losers um, uh, of these cases are indeed the whistleblowers. So that, that seems to me the next battleground. Um, why does it matter? Remember where I started. Right? Um, we're fouling up the politics of very poor countries. And with foul politics, um, they find uh, the route to prosperity extremely difficult. Thanks very much.